Darklang is a programming language that is tightly integrated with the cloud. Dark takes an opinionated approach that most developers are going to want to run their applications in the cloud, and this perspective influences how Dark looks at deployments, IDEs, exception handling, and other aspects of software development. Paul Bigger is the founder of CircleCI, which is an extremely successful company, and he ran that company for eight years before leaving to found Dark with Ellen Chisa. Ellen is a software engineer and the CEO of Dark. Paul and Ellen joined the show to give their perspective on modern software engineering and why it was time to build a new high-level language that assumes the presence of a cloud. It is difficult to get programmers to adopt a new language, and it's even harder to get those programmers to pay for products built around that language. But the timing could be perfect for Dark. Software development is undergoing tremendous change, and many of these changes work to Dark's advantage, such as the growing adoption of feature flags, low-code tools, and sophisticated continuous delivery workflows. Whether or not Dark is a success, it is a bold project, and the team is working on something that they believe in. We also had a great discussion about AWS, perhaps I should say debate about AWS, and whether the largest cloud provider has an obligation to contribute back to the open source community commensurate with how much AWS has gained from the open source community. If you're building a software project, post it on Find Collabs. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. It's a place to find collaborators for your software projects. We integrate with GitHub and make it easy for you to collaborate with others on your open source projects and find people to work with who have shared interests so that you can actually build software with other people rather than building your software by yourself. Find Collabs is not only for open source software. It's also a great place to collaborate with other people on low-code or no-code projects, or find a side project if you're a product manager or somebody who doesn't like to write code. Check it out at findcollabs.com. Ellen and Paul, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, happy to be here. Paul, you're the founder of CircleCI. There have been many CI providers. Circle has been especially successful. Why is continuous integration so interesting to you? Oh, God. I'm not sure that it particularly is. I, I think that the interesting thing for me is, is always making developers more productive. And I kind of joke that my career has been convincing investors to give me money for my pet compiler projects. And Dark is a, is a nice continuation of that. But just staying on your time with Circle or the continuous integration more broadly for a bit, because I think this ties in pretty closely to, to Dark. Oh, and, for sure. Do you have any lessons for, I mean, Circle was able to compete in a very crowded market and right. do really well in a very crowded market. Yeah. And my sense is that the only way to do that is to have some kind of passion about what you're doing, like some kind of like serious oh, level yeah, no, of passion. I, 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 love, I love making like products that people use. Like while, you know, automating a particular workflow isn't necessarily the most interesting thing when, when you throw in customers and throw in the value that, that they experience and, and your sort of your engagement with that community, like you can make almost anything fascinating. But I've always been fascinated with the idea of the productivity that you get from CI. So when CI stopped being just CI and started being CI CD, and it started being a lot more about just running tests, which running tests, I don't think is, is a particularly interesting thing. But when it becomes about this is how a developer gets their code from their machine into production, and that you're making that life easier for them, and, and then you're using the product yourself, I, th I think that's fascinating. How are modern continuous integration workflows inefficient? Do you want the dark answer or the or the Circle CI answer? I want the the holistic answer. Maybe you could give the Circle CI answer, and then Ellen could give the dark answer. So I mean, I, I think I think that it is challenging to represent everything that you want to represent as part of that flow in a simple process that finishes quickly. If the time that it takes 
to get your code into production is one of the limiting factors on on development, which I believe it is, then there's an inherent trade-off between the amount that you want to guarantee during that process and the amount of time that it takes to get that process finished. And I think that dovetails nicely into how we think about it at Dark. It's almost like I planned it. Strange. Where we always think of it as we're trying to minimize the amount of time a developer is waiting for things to happen and that they're able to see the impact of their software right away. So minimizing the wall clock time that it takes to get there. And from that perspective, CI is there as something which helps you be sure that what you're putting out is safe, but it's not necessarily the only way to do that. So Circle was started in 2011. Mm -hmm. At this point, you've been thinking about continuous integration for eight years. A bit longer than that. Longer than that. And you somehow arrived at the idea that in order to solve the developer workflow problems, we need a programming language. Right, right, exactly. How did you come to that conclusion? It took many years of thinking of it in many ways. I think there was probably about seven different threads that that sort of combined into a single thing. And, and many of them came from the experience of having a startup, of managing a team, of trying to get projects built and some of it came from frustrations with you know, the many languages I've used in the past. And once I started running through what does it look like to solve these problems, I realized that they were all kind of the same problem and, and they fed into the, the same thing. So the, the one that's most interesting probably to, to, to your audience is the problems I had with Clojure. So Clojure was, was what we used at CircleCI and it, it's an amazing language. It's, it's a beautiful language and it has these amazing concurrency primitives. And we heavily use the concurrency primitives to do things like scheduling notifications and that kind of thing. So you'd send a notification when a build is finished, when a build starts, that sort of thing. And we realized that some notifications weren't getting sent. And that's because if a notification got queued and it didn't get sent and then we turned the machine off because we were you know, in the cloud and we're spinning things up and spinning things down, then you know it didn't get sent. And so there, there was this strong impedance mismatch between the idea of Clojure as a language that ran on a single machine and the idea of using the cloud. And ironically, languages that had worse concurrency primitives, such as Ruby, ended up having much better cloud architectures because they enforced the idea of like using queues and background workers and that kind of thing. So the, the realization I had from this was we don't necessarily need languages to run on machines anymore. We need them to run on a cloud, essentially, or sort of above the cloud. Ellen, you got involved a few months after Paul had started Darklang. Why did you get involved with the project? Yeah, it's actually, it's funny. If you look at my background, it doesn't, you wouldn't look at it and go, Ellen should make a programming language. You would look <laughs> at it and be like, this person's going to start some consumer product company. But when I met Paul and we first started talking about this, I realized like, I'm a pragmatist at heart, and a lot of the things that were preventing me from being able to build and deliver as quickly at these consumer companies as I wanted to were actually infrastructure challenges, where you would set up your data stores wrong, and then you would have all these performance problems until the end of forever, or your staging environment wouldn't match your production environment, and you would test really well in staging, and then it would actually break when you shipped. Or you would be like me, and you'd be a PM, and you would get your emulator and your environment set up so you could build small features in your free time, Two weeks later when you actually had your free time. By the everyone. way, I don't know any other PMs that do that. Really? I don't think so. It's I, fun. I know PMs that could. I know PMs that could. I don't think I've known ever ever known a PM that does that. But anyway, it's, that's, it's because what happens it's great. is every time you get it set up to do this, then by the time you get back to your desk to do it, everything is broken. And you're like, am I going to go spend three hours getting someone to help me fix this environment again because of the things that have changed? And then you kind of feel like whatever value you would add by writing more code is wasted because you've then distracted someone else to help you fix your environment. Right, but still, I mean, this project is cool. It's kind of crazy. Like when I first saw it, I was like, don't need to pay attention to this. Honestly, what got me to pay attention is pretty smart entrepreneurial people working on the project. Most of the time, if you would have seen this kind of thing in Hacker News, you're like, okay, it's going to fade away in you know, a couple months. So what got you intrigued enough to actually pursue this? I think that's the thing that was unusual was I just looked at it and went, oh yes, of course that's how it should work. And so I didn't have that mismatch that everyone else had where they thought it looked crazy. I just saw it and was like, yes, that is where we are going. Hmm. And I think that actually confused Paul at the time because he was used to trying to convince people that it wasn't. Mm. Give me your perspective on the trends for why it makes sense for a new programming language that assumes you are in the cloud. 
Sure. So the first one is almost everything we run is in the cloud now. Like you might still have some bash script you run locally for your computer, but for the most part, anything you're building that you want other people to use is going to be in the cloud. And that's kind of the fundamental place we're running things. I think then beyond that, in terms of other trends that are going on that make this the right time to do this is you're seeing even the number of people who are either trying to major in CS and not able to because we don't have enough faculty to train them or the number of code schools that are popping up. There is this demand for we need to be able to write more software or we need to be able to write the software more quickly. And the solutions that we found so far of trying to train more people aren't working, which means we have to fix something else. What's not working? What do you mean? Oh, so if you think about it in terms of like the reason the market salaries are so high is we just don't have enough people who are able to write and deliver the amount of code we need to deliver. And so in terms of that, things you can do, you can write less code or deliver less product, which isn't what anyone wants to do. Or you can figure out how to hire more people to apply them to that problem, which maybe works, maybe doesn't, ethical man month and all. Or you can figure out how to make the time it takes to build anything take less long. Hmm. So the way that I think about modern programming is it's JavaScript and APIs and cloud services. And the only time I'm going to write code is if I'm writing JavaScript. And the only time I'm going to look at another programming language is when I have performance issues. How closely does that map to how you both see modern programming? I think one of the great things about the JavaScript ecosystem is just how much is already available for it. And so like the thing that makes JavaScript nice to pick up is chances are someone has done something similar to what you're doing. So you're going to get a lot of high quality answers for the problem you're going to try to solve. You're going to have a lot of packages that you're able to use right out of the box. But I think that the tendency to pick up JavaScript is because of that ease of use and that amount of work that already exists. So I guess your question a little bit is, is why did we make a new language to a certain extent? Yeah, it's sort of... Well, the way that I think about Dark is it's a language that's built for like productivity, right? Like you want fast product yeah, delivery. That, that's to a good market. way of, of saying it. And the crowd that wants to do that mm-hmm. is like the crowd that's building with just like JavaScript. They're just like mm-hmm. stitching together. Sure. Like, you know, give me the React boilerplate thing. Like, let me browse some easy components to throw together. And that's my UI. And then. They're like, okay, yeah, I got a Twilio thing, and it like matches to a Stripe thing, and mm-hmm. like they just glue it together with JavaScript. And I want to make the case that Dark can potentially provide a more productive experience. Yes. So uh, I think the first place to look is why aren't things better today? So if we look at, at how people have tried to abstract and, and tried to reduce the complexity and the things like using AWS Lambda, for example, or, or anything in the sort of the serverless realm or some of the other startups that are, that are in this space that are focused on JavaScript. And we don't believe that any of that has solved all the complexity that's out there. And when we looked at how this sort of thing needs to work, we realized that integrating directly with an existing language or with an existing ecosystem was not necessarily possible to do the things that we wanted to do. So for example, if you're looking at the live values, which is if you look at the at the dark demo, you'll see that anytime that you're writing code, you're shown a real production value that has happened recently in production and its effect on the code that you just wrote. And to, to cobble that together from the existing infrastructure, from the, you know, if you wanted to try and put hooks into the V8 interpreter to try and get that information out or the amount of work that it would take to try to shunt that into existing workflows means that we just didn't feel it's possible and, and still don't feel it's, it's possible. So we needed something new. And it's not necessarily that, that it needed to be not JavaScript. It's also not Ruby and not Python and, and all these other things. It's just that it needed to be tightly connected to the editor and to the infrastructure, and it needed to be designed for that purpose. There is the modern infrastructure context and workflow context, and that's part of the motivation for why Dark is built the way it is. There's also the... Paul, I understand you have an affinity for programming languages. Could you each name how a specific programming language that is, you know, I don't know, niche or novel or... Tell me how other programming languages inspire Darklang? 
it's funny that, that that you say that I have an affinity for programming languages because I actually feel the opposite. I feel like I hate every programming language, <laughs> okay. and I just I just hate some less than others. Okay. So I used to describe Clojure as my least hated programming language rather than my favorite, and Python as my second least least hated. But you know, there's tons of things that have influenced it. We're influenced probably by six or seven different languages directly. I think that the greatest influence I think has probably been Elm. Elm really showed us how the ML type system can make it easier to write programs and, and, and to write simple programs that are easy to understand and, and easy to know that you're not making any mistakes. And it also showed us how good a well-designed standard library can be, which I think is a thing that many, many languages don't have. I think in addition to that, slightly off, we also are influenced a lot by academic work. So like Cyrus Omar's work on Hazel and thinking about how you build structured editors around blanks and how you generate them and how you see the results in each type. Or there's also some work out of a university in Colorado that I think is really interesting that when people are picking up a new language, it doesn't actually matter very much what you make the keywords. It just matters that they feel familiar and that they can learn them. And one of the nice things about having the language be AST-based instead of text-based is we could at some point have different flavors of dark. So the vocabulary feels more like Elm or more like JavaScript or in the future, could be native to the language of the developer rather than always in English. Well, that's actually pretty interesting, what you just said there at the end. Wait, but what is AST-based versus text-based? Yeah, so when you're coding in Dark, you're directly manipulating the abstract syntax tree. So say like you have a variable that you've declared and then you're using it in a bunch of different places. If I was doing that in React, if I renamed my variable, I would then have to go manually rename everything and edit the text to update that in Dark we know that that is the usage of that variable and we update them all dynamically for you mm. as you edit the first one. Mm. And the idea of a language that, what did you say at the end, like a language that it does not read in English? Are all programming languages like throughout the world, or, I mean, does everybody type in English basically? Pretty much, yeah. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, so you're like, you're someone who speaks, say, Russian or Spanish and you're learning all of these like very specific English words that are only meaningful to you in a programming context. And how would a AST-based language help with that? Yeah, so since there's a representation under the hood of what it is, you could know that you're using let, for instance, but like maybe there's a different word that would make more sense in French for instead of let for declaring things. Why can't we do that with like Java? Oh, the whole problem comes down to text. Parsers are a nightmare. And the flavors of Java that people use have specific parsers all across the thing. So consider all the places that your text lives in Git, it lives on your machine, it lives in your editor. And so to change it, you need a translator from the text that you have, the parser that you have that reparses and regenerates it in a different language. And you need that to be in, in VS Code, you need that to be in GitHub, you need that to be in whatever other software you use. And, and then eventually you need it like, well, translate it back for the interpreter to use. It's, I mean, it's possible, but it's sort of nonsense. It's like, who would do that much work when people already, I mean, <laughs> tens of millions of people learn all the English words by rote in order to write it, but they've already done that work. So who, who's going to do the work to like translate a language and all the standard libraries in, into something else? In addition to all the things that it might just not be possible to cobble together all these pieces. Whereas if you're in an AST-based language or something like that, it's just a presentation layer. It's a thing that no one has to really be aware of. You both mentioned Elm. Elm's an interesting example because it's a language that is beloved and inspirational to many. I think, It's lovely. I think React, weren't parts of React inspired by Elm? Uh, Redux was based Redux. on the Elm architecture. Like Dan Abramov is, is in love with, with Elm. Maybe that's an overstatement. But that language... As beloved as it is, I know of one company that uses it in like in significant production. Why is that? Why is a language like Elm that's so oh, widely I have beloved? So many, so many opinions on this. I will let Paul answer this. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, uh, Dark started with our editor written in Elm, and we we've moved it to BuckleScript over the last what, it was about a year ago. What's BuckleScript? ReasonML. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. The uh, Facebook thing. Yeah, the Facebook thing. BuckleScript is just another one of the technologies. It's the same as ReasonML, basically. And we switched it over because the, I think, almost for the same reason that Elm is beloved. Elm is beloved because of, of how tightly integrated it is and how good the design decisions have been made in it. 
And as a result of this, they they wanted to remove a feature that we relied on. And we realized that it was not actually possible for us to rewrite our code base without this feature. And that we had started to rely on this feature. So the, the feature is like directly being able to call JavaScript code versus going through the eventing system that Elm relies on. And we realized that we had started relying on this more and more and that we were going to continue doing so. And so it's removal was a thing that we felt did not allow us to actually create the software that we were trying to create. Can you extrapolate that to like why Elm isn't used by people? I think Elm isn't used by people because it's too weird. It's too different to how people write software, how they write JavaScript today. So it forces everything through this Elm architecture, which I think is relatively easy to understand once, once you get it. But I think that there's quite a bit of a learning curve there. I think perhaps Redux will push more and more people to it because they will have learned this architecture through Redux. And I think that it's hard a lot of the times for code written in Elm to interface with code that's written directly in JavaScript. That's also changing as things move more to a functional reactive paradigm. But certainly when we were writing it, we would struggle to find libraries that we could reuse. You contrast that with like Erlang, right? Like Erlang is a weird language, but people use Erlang. I think one of the things about the about the front-end community is, is how much of it is reusing other components and other things that people have written. So stuff that's written for Erlang is written in Erlang and works with Erlang. If you want to talk to other services, you talk to it in the same way that, that you do in most languages, which is over, over HTTP. Whereas on the front-end, JavaScript is, is the lingua franca. So if you're doing something that's not JavaScript, if it doesn't integrate very easily, and this is one of the one of the decisions that ReasonML made that, that they wanted a much nicer integration with JavaScript. But if it doesn't have that nice integration, it's it's hard to adopt. Well that actually works in your favor, right? Like if you're if you're talking about backend languages being friendly or, or people are you know, it's it's like a friendly atmosphere to bringing in a new backend language, probably more friendly than like bringing in a new front front end language. Oh yeah, one of the overwhelming trends of the last decade is polyglot microservices. So people writing their you know, different services in different languages. So you start with maybe Ruby or Python, and then you realize that this thing might be better written in Rust or in Go or in Scala. And, and that's that's a decision that people make all the time. And, and we, we think Dark slots in there nicely. It just You just have to try one new service in Dark. And if you like it, yeah, maybe it'll be two new services in Dark. Give me your perspective on how languages should handle typing, static or dynamic or some kind of optionality. We, we put out a blog post about this recently. I considered calling it like, you know, experience report from 20 years of, of static and dynamic languages. But the, the opinion that I have on it is that dynamic languages are really awesome at some things and static languages are really awesome at some things. And in particular, when you're writing new code, dynamic languages are amazing because they don't get in the way. And when you have a lot of code and you want to make large uh, scale changes to it, static languages are amazing because they have tooling that provides a lot of safety around that. You can get both advantages in in the other community. So like Haskell has put an, an extraordinary amount of work into making static types vanish at the early sort of prototyping stage if you're an expert Haskeller. And dynamic language people will often spend an extraordinary amount of time writing writing unit tests to allow them have that sort of refactoring that, that, that you get mostly but not entirely for free in static languages. So yeah, I think I think both just have great use cases that they're really good at. And I personally feel that neither one is good at the other one's use case. Yeah, I agree. That's generally what I found. I am much more on the side of I would rather write things quickly, but most of my things are quick things that I write. Mm. How is this influence dark? So in dark, we try to give you this hybrid best of both worlds experience. So we have functionality called the error rail. And so when you're writing something, what we do is we tell you, say, if you're making a data store query that might fail, might return null to you, when you're writing it, as long as you're getting a response, we just let you keep seeing that execution path. But we pull out the fact that you do eventually need to write the logic to handle that case. So you can keep building, get the thing working, see it working when you know that it's like your data that you put in for a test. And later, when you want to make sure you have it handled, you can go back and easily add all of those places. Hmm. You write that there's some accidental complexity in many languages. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? 
So accidental complexity is, is a phrase that, that I first heard from a paper called No Silver Bullet by Fred Brooks. And the idea is that, that he splits up the complexity into two kinds. Essential complexity, which is the core of the problem that you're solving, the, the thing that your customers pay you to solve, basically, and accidental complexity, which is all the other shit that you need to deal with. So you can think of setting up your infrastructure as accidental complexity because sure it matters that there's infrastructure there but it doesn't matter what the infrastructure is if if you if you magically had infrastructure then that would have make no difference to your customers versus if you spent you know tens of hours on it whereas you wouldn't magically have your product because you want to like that that's the actual value that you provide in your opinions and your workflows and, and the tooling that you provide is is the thing that that actually matters to your customers what are the ways in which IDEs are insufficient, modern IDEs? I certainly think it depends on what tooling you're deciding to use. And so I think there have been steps recently for people designing IDEs specifically around programming languages like what Kite did with Python or, I guess, in JetBrains and all of the work that they try to do. I have a friend who's been working on an editor that's specifically set up to work well with Go. But I think the challenges that people face are if you're doing this multi this polyglot microservices architecture are you going to have one editor per language to be getting the best experience for that language and so i think for people who are primarily doing one thing like ios developers can tell you about both the pros and cons of xcode and using that integrated environment you're not necessarily going to get one thing that works when you're building backend services anything to add paul in terms of ids sucking there's no end to the list of ids sucking i think fundamentally the the problem is that most of our ids don't don't really understand the languages that we're in i think the best ideas are like ellen says the sort of JetBrains stuff in the world the intellijs and, and and that kind of thing because they have really powerful tools that are that are designed for the language i think the probably the biggest step in editors and ides becoming really powerful is is the creation of the, the language server protocol it's it's kind of a shame that it took us maybe 50 years of software development to get to a place where go to definition consistently works on uh, in multiple languages. But once you've used a, an editor that really understands your language and then you go back to one that that doesn't, it's it's completely night and day. Mm. Dark does not have a compilation step or separate compiler slash interpreter. That's a quote from one of your blog posts. Can you explain what that means? How do you create a programming language that doesn't have a compiler? Well, it has an interpreter. I'll explain more. Sorry, that was a bit that was a bit trite. So there's a bunch of different technologies that you use to create a language. So the top three are interpreters, compilers, and just-in-time compilers. And I say top three, but really anything else can be can be redescribed as as, as one of those. So the way it works in Dark is you have your editor, which is directly manipulating the the abstract syntax tree. So the abstract syntax tree is your in-memory representation of of the program. So it's it's got an object representing a for loop, and it's you know with, within that there, there's objects that represent you know, whatever else. And so we take that program, we save it in the editor, and when you make a request, we load it from the editor and we interpret it. And like our our interpreters is like 500 lines, and interpreters are not particularly hard to write. And so interpreter in the same way that, that Python has an interpreter, that Ruby has an interpreter, the, the JavaScript interpreter is much more complex than that. So I won't say it's exactly the same as that, but it's, it's similar in concept. How would you compare Darklang to a framework like Rails? So when we decompose the parts of our, of our language, what we're calling a language, so there's, there's the infrastructure side of it, there's the there's the language side of it, there's the editor part of it. And all of that we call we call Darklang, but in, in, internally we, we sort of decompose it. And one, one part that we talk about is the framework. So the framework roughly corresponds to what Rails does in, in Ruby. It's the ORM, although in, in Dark it's not exactly an ORM. It's the middleware around HTTP. It's the things that provide a nice experience on top of the language. So there is there is a huge influence from from Rails and I, 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 I guess most of the other web stacks that we took influence from took their influence from Rails. So I, I, think, I think in terms of, uh, of the framework part of our language, everything points back to Rails. Describe the hello world experience for Darklang. 
I think the other comparison people make with Rails is that when Rails came out, it was amazing how much faster it was to set something up. It was very pragmatic. I really enjoyed the era of time that was Ruby Rails Heroku. That was great. Isn't that today? It still works today, but it takes longer than it takes in dark. So I've moved over. Oh, uh, okay. yeah. Oh, we're in my, the dark era. I've moved. The dark ages. <laughs> me getting my hello world in Rails usually takes me like, I don't know, I have to go to my command line. I have to update things. I have to make sure like all my homebrew packages are correct. Like, yeah. So you spend a bunch of time doing stuff in like, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes if you're fast. Later, you have your server up with your hello world. In dark, you just open your browser. You specify the method and what you want to return is your response and you have an api with hello world up in gif length like 10 seconds four seconds it's short you tweeted out a gif recently i did tweet you? a gif yeah mostly because i'm so pleased that it's that length what was the gif it was literally making a hello world in dark mm. it fits in that span of time why do i want a programming language that's tightly coupled to a cloud <sighs> So many reasons. One, you don't have to do the part where you make the thing and it works on your computer and then you're like, oh wait, no one else can use this. This isn't real. I now have this giant other project to get it like set up and put somewhere else, which I always find extremely disappointing because I've done the fun part of building the thing and it works for me, but oh, now I have to make it work for everyone else. I do that the other way around. I, I build the infrastructure first and then I get so frustrated by that that I've lost all enthusiasm for creating whatever it is I'm trying to create. And both of these result in no new software being right. made. Uh-huh. <laughs> you guys should just quit and start a podcast. Oh, wait, that's what I did. Oh. Pause the podcast. Don't quit. Please don't quit. That would be yeah, no fun. I, I don't record enough of that podcast to do it. But then the other thing is you get cool stuff that you don't get in other experiences. So when you're programming in dark, because you're on your production infrastructure, you get all of your incoming requests and you can see real trace information. And so there's a huge difference between writing some code and then being like, I wonder if this works and then shipping and seeing if it does and being able to like add one new expression, immediately see what the effect of that expression was and have that like real time confirmation that you're doing the right thing every step of the way. Oh, I, I want to add more here. There's so much more. Deployless is the thing that I, you can tell, like we, we just turned from like, you know, having a conversation on the podcast, like to excited, like, like energizer bunnies. Oh yeah. So the thing that we're calling deployless, this thing where, where you write code and then it is instantly in production and like the, the deploy time is like 50 milliseconds that, that, that was like the, the original the first thing that we added to dark and and that's just like completely life-changing anytime that i i go back to the old ways of coding i'm just like like, i can't believe i have to do this anymore (laughs) you probably both seen replit right Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah that's cool so replit's perspective is you develop in the browser Mm -hmm. and the browser gives you this environment that's connected to the cloud mm-hmm. and it doesn't you don't even know you're connected to the cloud mm-hmm. i feel like dark kind of does the same thing but as a programming language how would you contrast those two experiences or do you know much about i, I haven't even used, uh, yeah, I haven't yeah, used yeah, replit yeah. i've, I've used a little replit, bit yeah. in it i did a show on it but yeah i don't know, don't know too much about it there's definitely i think from what i understand of replit one of their core use cases is helping people learn and yes. so that real-time feedback aspect and why people like Rebels in general is because you're seeing what's happening right away. But historically, we've combined, like, confined that experience to things that are about learning or for people who are new to development. So like Scratch is another classic example, which is like a learning language from MIT where you see what's happening in real time, which is mostly for children. But I think 140 million people a year use it, so it's probably not all children. And so from that perspective, those tools are usually regarded as I'm doing this to learn. Or similarly, when you're doing any front-end development, since you're in the browser, like you can open your browser tools and tweak things and again, see it as you learn. We don't usually have that experience for building backends. And so that's the exciting thing about having a language for building backends in the browser. The difference is our intent with Dark is that you actually write your real application and it keeps growing with you. It's not something where you're just playing to learn. It's certainly, a, you can learn, but the, the point is actually shipping production code, not playing with something or learning something new. Explain what feature flagging is and why that's integrated into your language. So feature flagging is basically a glorified if statement. It allows you to show different code to different people, mostly from a a control that's separate from 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 the code base. So it has a lot of uh, a lot of similarities to to A/B testing or to or to blue green deployment. 
but it is, is basically a thing that lets you show a feature to some subset of people and not all the people so that you can you know get feedback from your beta testers or ship something to production that isn't quite ready but that you don't want to just live on a branch for for, for a really long time the reason that it's integrated into the language is because it was important that for how we were building feature flags it was important that they had a semantics and what i mean by that is it was we needed to understand what happened when the feature flag was in various different states so what 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 does it mean when the feature flag is not done or you've just inserted it how can we make sure that the code continues to work until your feature flag is in the state that 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 you actually want it wants to be represented and the reason that it's so important to, to have this in Dark is that the feature flag replaces every other technique of conditional code deployment. So today we have our dev environments, which is sort of a different environment. It's a different place that that code lives. We also have all the various Git branches and pull requests where, where we ship intermediate code. We also have the action of replacing code that's in production with the new code that's coming into production. And, and often this is integrated into stuff like Kubernetes. All of that stuff in Dark gets replaced with a single concept, which is feature flags. And the intuition there is if we're going to use feature flags to enable things to users anyway, uh, if that's the mechanism that, that we're going to use, and, and I, to my mind, that is the state-of-the-art mechanism that, that, that all the best companies use, then why are the other steps so important? Why is it important that there's a deployment? Right? Once you've it used to be that, that, that when you mm. deployed something, that got that was the way that you delivered something to users. But now, if you've moved that into a feature flag, then all that's left in the deployment is the risk that you f- something up and you're taking down the server. And all that's left in the idea of having Git branches is, is merge conflicts. Like there, there isn't any real value to it anymore. You're blowing my mind. Thank you. Honestly, uh, uh, that's feedback we get a lot. That's like I think our most used emoji when people tweet about dark is the, like the brain exploding emoji, which makes me pretty happy. Well, no, I just I kind of just got it because I've been doing a lot of interviews with Facebook engineers, a lot of like the earlier Facebook engineers, and many of them mention. And you're friends with Edith. You host a podcast with Edith to be continuous. Edith, who runs uh, Launch Launch Darkly, yeah. The way that a company that where their workflow around feature flagging is mature, Mm -hmm. the way that those companies operate is, in many ways, a lot safer, a lot more pleasurable, just different. It's more empowering for the people who are not shipping the code Mm -hmm. directly to act like operators because they can just turn on and off feature flags. Feature flagging really is one of these things that's kind of, I feel like, sneaking up on the industry, you know, because initially you look at it and you're like, okay, cool, it's like an augmentation to, like, modern continuous delivery workflows. Mm -hmm. But when you kind of see that it's, it's just, it's like continuous delivery in the sense that, like, if you can leverage it significantly enough, it can completely change how your company operates. Mm Mm-hmm. It is exactly like continuous delivery, and it has, I mean, it, it's sort of an enabler of the two. Like, there's a reason that that Edith, the CEO of LaunchDarkly, has a podcast called To Be Continuous. Like, it's it's the same concept. One is an enabler for the other, and they they can't exist without each other. It's all it's all about reducing risk. They're both tools that reduce the risk of a single piece of code, like a single massive code drop, which everyone knows doesn't work into many small chunks, each of which have significantly lower risk. Right, and it makes the gradual ratchet-up process much easier. Mm-hmm. Funny story about Facebook. This was in previous recent episode, but there was just uh, this guy I interviewed who used to do uh, Facebook release engineering. There was some huge outage. I think I asked him, like, what was the biggest incident or outage that he remembered, and there was some incident where, like, Facebook accidentally turned on all the feature flags. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard of this. This has been recounted. I just laugh every time I think about that. Okay, so when you talk about unifying the programming language and the cloud provider, it calls into question, what are you doing on the cloud provider? What should the cloud provider be doing? Or are you a cloud provider? Or like what, you know, tell me more about 
how dark presents itself as an infrastructure provider today? I guess this is more dark the company. Mm -hmm. From the perspective of using dark, you're just programming your backend and the cloud just exists for you. You don't think about it at all. So it's completely invisible. So it's not like you write a bunch of code in dark and then there's a bunch of other settings or things you go fiddle with to make it work. It just works. And that's the benefit of having something that's deployless. From the company perspective, we I guess we think of it the same way any other cloud provider would. We think of it as we're providing people compute and storage. You're on AWS at this point? We're on GCP. GCP. Hmm. How do you evaluate those two cloud providers in the choice of usage? Um, kind of a bunch of different ways, but one of them honestly is just like AWS. It's, it's a nightmare. I hate it. They're also a very predatory company. So we picked GCP. Really? Mm. What makes you say they're predatory? Oh, I remember, I don't know if it was said publicly or if it was reported back, but one of the, one of the executives at AWS said that they look at their customers' traffic to decide what products to build next. But like, that's what, I mean, I'm wearing, I wear Amazon clothes most of the day. I, I know, like, I know. And they're we're, like we're all complicit. They're like 15 bucks, but it's not complicit. It's like this leads to better quality products, right? Sure. And it leads to Amazon taking all of the value of the infrastructure ecosystem. But isn't that great? The infrastructure developers can go do something else. Not, not if you want any innovation in the ecosystem. So if, if, if you want companies to be able to innovate in the ecosystem, then it stands to reason that the, the reason that they're creating their tools isn't necessarily so that Amazon can make more money. This is what is so baffling to me because this is what this is what the these open source companies yeah, are saying. Yeah. They're they're right. They're billion dollar companies. Huh. And they're still right. But it's not inhibiting their innovation at all. The if Amazon takes all the value from them, then it is. Amazon's not taking all the value from them. I mean, like Confluence is still a multi billion dollar right, company. Right. Elastic they're, is still they're, a They're not yet, but Amazon has just started doing that stuff. How does it look in five years or ten years? Are are they still are they still companies that are pumping back the revenue to innovate on in the products, or are they not? And I mean, we we don't know for sure, but certainly, you know, from the perspective of Dark, we we are setting up Dark so that it is not in a way that that it can be cannibalized by cloud providers. I mean, just to stick on this point for a little bit longer, just because you're you know you're you're a powerful voice in the space of cloud infrastructure. And I, I really just want to push back on this because I, I, I mean, look, I worked at Amazon for eight months. I love the company. Mm-hmm. I just, I love it. I believe in their ethos and I don't think of them as predatory. I think a lot of my perspective is shaped by being on the far side of the table when talking to like executives in cloud. They, yeah, yeah I'll just leave it at that. Really? Come on, expound on that. Uh, I I don't I don't have any more to say on that. I mean, this, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's. I certainly agree that there is value to us having public clouds. Oh, like yeah, I think, no. like we don't want everyone to be sitting around running their own server in their basement. We don't ever having to maintain their own data centers. I think the industry gets a lot of value out and, of and that. That's there the thing. Like Amazon did, did a lot of innovation of, of of their own. Yeah. Like the you know Lambda is is a thing Amazon created. It's a it's a wonderful innovation. I mean S three EC two. All of those are, are amazing innovations and, and you know, stuff like Dynamo, like there's, there's a lot of uh, amazing stuff that, that Amazon has done, but they also do stuff that's shitty. I think that's the challenge though, of how we think about them in terms of a player in the ecosystem. Like clearly there's been an entire ecosystem built around these large cloud providers. And so from that perspective, that's more innovation. That's good. That wouldn't be happening if there wasn't a behemoth in the space to spawn all the other things. Mm-hmm. But as those things start to grow up, is there too wide of a gap to where they can be large enough to be genuine competitors as compared to something that would be mm-hmm. acquired and it's just a feeder for Amazon innovating via acquisition rather than creating their own things mm-hmm. or that they get copied and then effectively destroyed or what happens there? And so I think we haven't seen yet, will there be companies that are able to be at the same scale as mm-hmm. those major providers? And I think that that's part of the problem that traditionally there's there's a sort of unwritten rule in Silicon Valley that when you compete too strongly with someone, you sort of you know acquire them or something like that, or or, or you at least you know play nice with them to to you know get some value out of, of the 
or to allow them have some of the value that they've created. And when you look at Amazon's approach of like, let's say forking the Elasticsearch distribution or giving a version of a clone of Mongo, but but that is you know an old version of the of the protocol. What they're doing, I, I've no doubt in their own mind, what they're doing is responding to customers' demands, but they're also having an incredibly negative effect on the ecosystem. And, and when you look at these open source companies who are changing licenses, when you look at the sort of thing that the, the copyleft people are have been saying for years about the AGPL and, and, and that sort of thing, that you start to see that there's a lot of truth to what they're talking about, that, that they're it is possible in our current ecosystem for someone like Amazon to play completely within the rules and have massive negative effects. And I think that's something that, that, that our industry, especially the, the open source side of it, did not consider when we, were, when we were starting to do all that stuff. I think it also, it kind of points to a bigger question where I don't think we have very good ways of talking yet about the responsibilities of a company that is a platform compared mm-hmm. to any other company. Absolutely. And so I think you see the same thing in consumer stuff, like how is Twitter's responsibility for how people are using their platform mm-hmm. different? And so I think AWS kind of, there's a similar thing for the software ecosystem there. And I don't think we've talked about that very much yet. I mean, there's definitely a lot of people out there criticizing Amazon's ethics across the entire company, not just within AWS. And I think most of those people are deeply confused. Like, this is like a discussion about generic drugs. Like, if a drug manufacturer creates a novel drug, there's a six-month window, and then generic companies are able to produce copies of it, much like AWS produces generic versions of Elasticsearch. It's like a lower quality product. Like, there's no way that the Elasticsearch product from Amazon is as good as the one offered by Elastic, because for Elastic, it's existential. And we know that offering search and services on top of search is an infinitely complex problem. So why are we at all worried about Elastic's viability as a company? I think that's a sort of bizarre positioning to put on it. The issue is the sustainability for the users. If the users take their money and they pump it into something that that Amazon makes and and they're going to do that because it's convenient to be integrated with the rest of your of your AWS infrastructure right there's the stuff that comes from that that Elasticsearch cannot provide as well as the the cost and economies of scale that Amazon gets from being you know, frankly a monopoly provider so what you have from this is that the sustainability of the ecosystem is damaged and the sustainability of that product is damaged because because Amazon is taking from that community, which you know it's legally entitled to do, that this is how the this is how the licenses were, were all set up, but do not contribute back to to Elasticsearch or, or to Mongo. And sure, they're they're successful, but there are many companies that are significantly less successful. And I think uh, uh, Redis Labs is is not a billion dollar company. It's you know doing great stuff, but it it's you know has not yet achieved the the size and scale of of Mongo. And and it is equally affected by by this sort of thing. But the, the irony here is that if these companies took a page from Amazon's book and figured out how to expand laterally into adjacent markets, into new markets... I mean, the point of monopolies is that you can't. Only only one company can do it. Once it's done, no one else can. Well, but Amazon hasn't like captured the entire world. I'm advocating that... 47% of the cloud market, I think? I mean, it's a massive expanding market, and... Amazon created it, their first mover, not necessarily last mover. Oh, absolutely. But think, think of small startups in the space. You, you, you cannot compete with Amazon's pricing power. I mean, it, it's true across all of Amazon, but in, in AWS especially. Anytime Amazon offers a service, what they want is compute to be used. And so they're, they're offering it at, at what is your cost price. So you can't compete, even if it's a lower quality product. It's going to be it's going to be significantly cheaper, and maybe th- and maybe that's really good for for the consumers. All all I'm saying is that it stifles innovation in the space. All right, this is probably a conversation for another day. Right, uh, absolutely. I will defend Amazon. You know, I, I'm happy to take that position. You know, if it's any consolation, obviously most people are on your side in this conversation. That the people that I talk to. Is this where we throw in a shout out for Elizabeth Warren? <laughs> oh god i'm not making any <laughs> i think it's worth a shout out to mark zuckerberg like i don't think he did anything wrong in that commentary but again we don't need to have this conversation sure what's the go-to-market strategy I, this isn't going to sound terribly exciting but dark is really all about developers and developers 
writing applications. And so from that perspective, we're still in private beta right now, but while we're in our private alpha, what we did was spend all of our time sitting side by side with people who are writing services on Dark and making sure the experience was what they wanted it to be. And so, yeah, there's not much novel in this. It's that we hopefully build a set of tooling that people love using way more than that they have right now and helps them be more productive. What kind of feedback do you get from users so far? The mind blown emoji. That's my favorite one still. <laughs> There's definitely, you had this experience earlier. It takes a minute to wrap your head around the concept since it's so different to put your language, your editor, and your infrastructure all together. And so we usually spend a little bit of time with people kind of building up that workflow. And specifically in Dark, one of the things that makes for a great workflow is if you've already built your front end or a mobile application, or you're building something that basically is just talking to other APIs and you don't need to build a front end, starting from there and then building your API based on those requirements and then building your data stores based on the API that you need to support tends to be the preferred workflow with people. Did you all see the Ballerina project? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my understanding of Ballerina, I thought it was a very cool project or mm -hmm. is a very cool project. It seems like they had trouble messaging it or figuring out how to get it in front of people. Do you have any perspective on why, like why wasn't that project able to gain traction? It's kind of hard to tell. One of the interesting things about, about making developer tools is that developers, it's a fashion-driven industry. Right? So the, the way that things are taken up and, and the, the projects that succeed are, are, often, uh, are often not the best projects. Or, and and there, there isn't a particularly strong correlation necessarily between, between things that succeed and things that are, that are the right ideas. So I think it's very hard to look at something and say, this failed for, for, for this reason or, or this succeeded for, for, for this reason, apart from it managed to capture the, the, the minds of, of a certain set of early adopters who, who then championed it. I, I've looked at Ballerina. It's, it's, it's a lovely language. It made a lot of the same decisions or, or sort of adjacent decisions. They, they went with one sort of type system. We went with another. But I, I, I think that, that they have a, a really lovely language. The... The place that, that we've made a major different decision is to run the infrastructure. And that removes the a large infrastructure component versus Ballerina sort of sort of compiles to something that, that, that can be deployed to, to infrastructure. I don't know if that's the major difference or whether it's you know a certain way that we talk about deploy lists. Certainly our, our deploy list blog posts is, is the thing that really blew up and the idea that really blows people's minds. So it's kind of hard to tell, you know, what what exact thing didn't work for them, but I think I think it's it's a it's a lovely project and I think it should have done better. So the first company that you started, Circle CI is still doing extremely well. I would love to claim that that was the first company that I started, but there were two. Oh, oh actually, wait, I was looking at your LinkedIn. I saw uh, earlier yeah. companies. There were, there were two disasters uh, before that. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, if, Can if, you relive if, those briefly? So first one was company started right after college with five friends. And that was largely just disagreement of opinions. Uh, and, and I left and, and, and they kept it going. And then the second one was my Y Combinator startup. It was called News Labs, where... We, we were essentially trying to do sort of what Medium did, but to be Medium, you sort of have to be Ev Williams, and we were not Ev Williams. And and that, in the funding climate of the time, that, that was never going to succeed, and, and we, we shut it down after about eight months in a in a real blaze of glory. It was a sort of a horrifying descent. There's a very good blog post you can read on this. It's very funny. Oh, really? Okay. All right. So next time, flaming startup destruction and socialism for the cloud. So yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the title of a great podcast. Mm -hmm. Right. But Circle is crushing it at this point. Circle's doing wonderful, yeah. Did you leave the helm to do Darkling or are you like kind of doing both? So What's no, no, your... I, I left in 2015 and started Dark in 2017. It was taken over by, by two amazing executives, uh, Rob Zuber and, and Jim Rose. Who, who took over about, about six months before I left. And, you know, a lot of the, when, when I left, Circle was not the sort of runaway leader in the space. It was you know, sort of tied with, with another provider. And, and I think part of the reason that, that it is the runaway success is, is the, the phenomenal job those two executives are doing. I think it's cool that you left a company that was like unicorning it and started a programming language it is hard to run a company and the 
you know, people have certain skills and one of my skills was not being the CEO of like a mid-sized company that really needed to focus on like, you know, building out executive functions right. and sales teams right. and financial models and, and all this sort of thing. The thing that I really enjoy is, is working on product. And I mean, in dark, I'm, I chose to be CTO. I did not want to be CEO. Were you CEO of Circle? I was CEO of Circle. But the, you know, I, I went and I found someone who would be amazing at CEO, which, which Ellen absolutely is, because I did not want that to be my job. And seeing, you know, an incredibly competent CEO handling all the, all the things that I was not, that I was not good at is, is a humbling but delightful experience. Meanwhile, it's very nice to work with someone who has been a CEO because they can look at every single thing you do and be like, oh, 90% of this is correct. This 10%, I made this mistake before. Let's not make that one, which is great. Thank you for, for phrasing that delicately, which I, I know I often don't. What's the worst part of being a CEO? Is it like QuickBooks? Oh, no. There's actually, there's a startup called Pilot. They're great. Is, do uh, you use them? I do. I love it. <sighs> I got to get that. It's great. You should get mm. it. I'll give you a referral code. I'll take it. This podcast is not sponsored by Pilot yet. <laughs> use promo code SE Daily. No, I'm kidding. Uh, use whatever promo code she's got. I have a bookkeeper. I mean, is that the same? Do I need Pilot? We've always had Pilot because they launched and a friend referred me right around the same time we were starting and they were willing to do all of our historical books back for me to the very beginning. Jeez. It was great. Yeah. And they like rolled it in with my first month cost. I think it was... It wasn't that many months in advance, but it was really helpful. So if you have a bookkeeper and it works well for you, maybe you don't. Mm. But I did not have a bookkeeper. Mm. And so far, the solution has been fantastic. We should keep talking about it. Give me yeah. a better discount. Yeah. Okay. As we wrap up. Okay. Two more questions. I'll keep it for like 10 more, 10 more minutes. Do you want to actually me to tell you what is hard about being a CEO? Yes. Oh, yes, exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> I totally derailed you. Yes, no. yes. Please tell me. I think one of the hardest parts about it is that when things are going well, it means you are giving away every job you've ever had. So as soon as you get good at something and it's working, it's time to teach someone else to do it and let them run with it. And they might do it completely differently than you were doing it. And so the hard part of the job is anytime you do something well, it immediately means you don't get to do that thing anymore. Hmm. Interesting. That sounds like a feature and a bug. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's both. What do you guys think of no code? Oh, strong opinions. Or low code. If you feel that there's a difference. Yeah. So I, I think that enabling non-developers to build, to build applications and to be able to build the sort of things that we as developers do, I think that that's wonderful. And I think that it's a real indictment on our, on our industry that we did not do that without the creation of, of no code and low code. One of the, one of what Dark is trying to do is we're, we're, we're doing the same thing, but we're taking a different approach to it. We... Our approach is that we are making coding itself so easy that people who are adjacent to coding and then you know, over time more and more people will be able to use actual coding to build the kind of applications which today they're probably only able to do in, in no code and low code. And we think that the, the advantage of this is that code is a fundamentally better way of doing it because code is flexible. When you reach the end of your of the the sort of wizard abstraction that you get from from a no code or low code solution, you you often have nowhere to go. Whereas with code, the layer above it is code, the layer below it is code. It's it's easy to compose. You can build you can build new abstractions with it, which is a thing that so far you typically have not been able to do in in no code and low code environments. So we we are believers in in high code. You just have to make it significantly easier to build applications. And, and we think that that's what Dark is doing. And, and fundamentally, that's, that's the thing that we've designed it to do. I think that's like one of the things about it and one of the challenges that we see with low code, no code, is you always want to be able to like look under the hood and see what's going on. So maybe you start from a higher abstraction where you're like, oh, I'm just like, I just have a sign-in service. And then one day you're like, oh, I want to like add a new field to my sign-in service or add a password reset or whatever it is. And if you just have a module that is sign-in service and you can't look under and see, it becomes hard to learn, it becomes hard to get better at code, it becomes hard to understand what's going on. Whereas if you have something that's code and it's composable all the way up, you have that property by default. I think Webflow does something like yeah. that. Yeah, Webflow is really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Webflow is sort of, if you take low code and then you, you make it 
I, I guess it's coming at the other angle. It's yeah. it's it's low code, but you make it you make it so composable and so extendable that that you can do that sort of thing. I think that that's a thing that is not traditionally done by the majority of of low code and no code tools. But I think Webflow is fantastic. It gives you like a GraphQL thing. I think also if you like, it gives you a GraphQL. I hadn't seen that feature. That's cool. Futuristic stuff. Okay, last question. I want each of you to give me your most ambitious prediction for how software development will be different in the next five years. I think rather than everyone just buying the SaaS product that kind of sort of solves their problem, everyone will be able to build fully custom tools to match their own workflow. Five years. I'm ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) And optimistic. And optimistic. Two of my best and worst traits. I think that we're going to see increasing bifurcation of roles. So it's the front-end, back-end distinction is, is going to increase significantly. Those things are going to break up into many more groups. I guess back-end has already mm-hmm. broken up into a bunch of different groups. Front-end will probably break up into a bunch of groups as well. One of the things that we're trying to do with Dark is allow people who don't necessarily identify as back-end to do, to do back-end. So I hope that we will, we will allow the, the rejoining of those forces. But I think if things keep going as they are, then, then there's going to be a lot more specialization and a lot less sort of cross-pollination of of tools and ideas. Paul and Ellen, thank you for coming on the show so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And shout out to Sean Wang for putting this together, for pushing me to interview Dark Lang. He referred this show, and it was really interesting. That's awesome. Great conversation. Thanks, Sean.